Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, then turn in them to Psalm 44, which should be located on page 774 of your Reformation Study Bible as we look today at a psalm that at least raises one of the most fundamental questions in life. And the question is on the screens. You already know what it is. You've seen it on your study guide. About 40 of you have come to me this morning and said, wow, I can't wait to hear this message. The question is, why do, and then here comes the most important word in the sentence, why do good people suffer. The question is not why do bad people suffer or why do foolish people suffer or why do people who do stupid things suffer. The question is why do good people suffer and here's why. When a bad person suffers for doing a bad thing or a foolish person suffers for doing a foolish thing or somebody who does something stupid suffers for doing that stupid thing, we're not confused. We're not mystified. We're not living or cast into the land of what I'm going to call today of disillusionment, this land of questioning in which we're looking at our lives, or maybe it's the life of somebody that we love who also is suffering, and we're saying, whoa, hey, wait a minute, God, I can't really connect the dots here. I don't see the cause and effect relationship in their life. There's nothing that says to me, this suffering is justified. They've done no bad thing. They've done no foolish thing. They've done no stupid thing that I can see anyway. And a lot of times we're right. But when a bad person suffers for doing a bad thing or a foolish person for a foolish thing or somebody does something stupid and they suffer, well, we're okay with that. I mean, when you go on vacation this summer, you know, if you get a speeding ticket and it costs you like $500 and you were speeding, you might be a little upset about it. You know, you might be put out. You might be annoyed. You might be thinking to yourself, if I take this radar detector back to the store and return it, because obviously it doesn't work, I can get $200 back on the 500 that I'm going to pay, but you're not confused on why you're having to pay the 500 bucks. You were speeding. If you do something illegal and you're found out and you're prosecuted and you lose, and you go to jail. You may be scared half to death, worried, concerned, filling out your will. There might be all of these things that you're going to do to get ready before you go in, but you're not mystified. I had shoulder surgery nine weeks ago. Let me tell you why. It's because I went water skiing with a group of guys, and then contrary to every voice of common sense that was screaming within me, I tried to ski like I did when I was 17. And when I was 17, I skied three or four times a week. So I skied a lot. But I was with the guys, and so, you know, macho outweighs common sense. Common sense was gone, and I figured, you know, hey, I can still ski like I did when I was 17. Here's what I discovered. I can still ski okay, not nearly like I did when I was 17, but but not too bad. However, now when I fall, I need to be surgically repaired. That's the difference. (laughs) Then I discovered that the pain of paying the $4,000, because that's my out-of-pocket, to get my shoulder fixed was more than the pain of the shoulder, at least for the first three years after the injury. And then finally, when the pain of the shoulder exceeded the pain of the $4,000, I then also paid the $4,000, sustained that pain, got the surgery. I'm nine weeks into physical therapy. By all accounts, I'm doing great. But, you know, here's the thing. I'm aggravated at times. I wake up every single night at least three times, so I'm tired. I find it frustrating and terrifically inconvenient that I've got to do all this stuff. But I'm not living in the land of disillusionment. There's a very clear connection. I can tie things together here. I can say, here's my stupidity, and then I can connect the dots to everything I've experienced. Not once have I said, oh, God, why am I going through this? I I know why I'm going through it. It's when we don't know that it's a problem. 
It's when people who have done nothing bad that we or they can tell, nothing foolish that at least is tied to, you know, what they're suffering. They've done no stupid thing that's placed them in the position that they now find themselves to be in and who in fact are people who seemingly at least go out of their way to try to live the way that God would call them to live. It's when those folks suffer, whether that's ourselves or somebody else, Man, now we're confused, now we're mystified, now we're cast into this land of disillusionment where we find ourselves questioning God and going, you know, hey, whoa, hey, wait a minute, I I don't, I can't connect the dots here, man, and it is not making sense. And I need to tell you up front, this psalm does not answer that question. It does not. It's not the purpose. Now, there is an answer to the question, and the answer to the question is general in its respect, but it's very specific as it plays out in our lives, and it plays out in our lives differently. But the answer to the question, generally speaking, is for God's glory and for the good of His people. You see, the reality is that God gets great glory both in heaven and on earth. Read the story of Job. When you and I, by faith, cling to our God and refuse to let go, even when life makes no sense even when we can't connect the dots, even when we can't say, you know, this happened and that's why I find myself in this particular position. It's for His glory that He puts us through these things, and His glory, and this is faith, is so great that it fully justifies all the suffering that we go through. And it's also for our good. There is no instrument in the hand of God so precise, so exacting, and so powerful in our lives as suffering. So there's an answer to the question, but the psalm does not even pretend to give us the answer to the question. What it does instead is it teaches us how to endure in faith or to persevere in faith through these seasons of life that all of us find ourselves in at various times in which we can't connect the dots, in which we can't tie things together, in which we've done nothing bad, foolish or stupid, at least that we're aware of, and hey, God, I'm trying to live for you, and yet look at what's happening. How to persevere in the land of disillusionment. That's what the psalm is all about, and the psalmist will teach us lesson upon lesson through his own example, for that's the land he's living in when he writes this psalm. But he doesn't just write this psalm, he builds it, he constructs it, and I want to use language of construction. And the reason that I say that is he builds his psalm self-consciously after the pattern of a ziggurat. And I know most of you know what a ziggurat is, but if you don't, there's a drawing of one. And you can see that a ziggurat is a stepped pyramid. You see the steps, the stages, the levels? It has its roots in the earth and its uppermost chamber. Don't forget the uppermost chamber. That's the most important part is up into the heavens. They used to paint the uppermost chamber with a blue enamel so that it would literally, from the ground on a sky blue day, it would look like it's piercing the heavens. It's the idea is that it ties heaven and earth together. It was thought by the ancient Near Easterners to be a stairway to heaven. It was a means by which man who comes from planet earth could ascend up to that uppermost chamber and then the God that he would meet with would descend. And there they would meet. Now, 
The psalmist is not a pagan idolater. The psalmist is not advocating the building of ziggurats, you know, like in our back parking lot. That's not the idea. But he is an ancient Near Easterner, and he's capturing this idea, and literarily, he so carefully constructs his psalm in four different sections so as to create a literary ziggurat by which he is ascending up into that chamber, which is where he ends his psalm. And having ascended all the way to that point, it's there that he reveals his heart and he makes his request. And so there are ten lines of poetry upon which are built eight lines of poetry, upon which are built six lines of poetry, upon which are built four lines of poetry that form that upper chamber. It's really careful. And it's very beautiful. And so he builds the foundation of this literary ziggurat with his first ten lines of poetry, which really are just verses one through eight from our perspective. And it goes like this. The psalmist says, oh God, and then he says this, we have, and the next word's important, heard with our ears. He does not come out and go, okay, God, we have seen with our eyes. What they have seen with their eyes have just landed them, all of them, the psalmist and all of the people of God, the nation of Israel in the land of disillusionment. He's not talking about what they've seen. He's talking about what they've heard, and it's important from whom and when. He says, oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers, those who have gone before us, have told us what deeds you performed when? In the days of the psalmist? No, 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 in the days of the fathers. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. And so they've told us, for example, how you with your own hand drove out the nations who were their enemies in their day, but them, meaning our fathers, you planted like a vine that grew and spread fruitfully all over the land. They told us how you afflicted the peoples, meaning the peoples of their enemies in their day, but them, our fathers, well, them you set free. For according to our fathers, not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So what's going on in this psalm? What's happening is this. In the days of the psalmist, the nation of Israel has gathered together in faith and in obedience to God to go out to battle to fight their enemies, just like their fathers had done, you know in their days. And in the days of the psalmist, as you'll see in this psalm, they've done nothing bad, they've done nothing foolish, they've done nothing stupid. In fact, they are living in obedience to God. They're doing everything that they know to do to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And so they go out to battle very confident that they are going to be victorious and they are completely and totally crushed. And they all come back, well, except for all of those who died with their tail between their legs, completely disillusioned. Thus this psalm, layer by layer, all the way to the uppermost chamber. And the psalmist is not here to tell us why they were defeated or why you and I get defeated. He's here to teach us by his own example what to do when we are defeated. And he's already given us lesson number one. Lesson number one for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to focus 
on God's faithfulness. Now, why do you suppose that is? I think that it's because it is God's faithfulness, perhaps more than anything else, that we tend to doubt when we can't connect the dots, when there's no causal relationship that we can discern that explains what we're going through, when we find ourselves in this land of questioning, this land of disillusionment, going, hey, whoa, hey, wait a minute. You know, what is this? What's happening here? The psalmist is coming to us and he's saying, look, if that's where you're living right now, you have a choice of what you can focus on, and faith calls you to focus for the good of your own soul on the reality of the faithfulness of your God. And He has given you a track record of faithfulness in your own life, hopefully in the lives of your parents and families, in the life of the history of the church, and certainly in the life of the Word that He gives to us in the Bible. Lesson one is for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to focus on God's faithfulness. He's coming to us and He's saying, train your mind on these things. And then He continues in verse four and He says, you, meaning you, O God, whose faithfulness to the aid or for the aid of my own soul, I have chosen to focus upon are my what? You are my king, O God. He's making a declaration of faith. Even in the midst of disillusionment, he's saying, I will not forsake you. Even though this is what you have chosen for me, and I don't like it at all, and I definitely don't understand it, I accept it. You are my king, and I bow to your greater will. And I submit to your greater wisdom. But, but then he adds the thing that, that we all want him to say too. It's like, but he, then he says, but please, in a sense, he says, ordain salvation for Jacob because he knows something that you and I know too, which is, you know, we're defeated today and the sun goes down and guess what? It happens tomorrow morning. It comes up and we've got to go out and get out of bed and go fight again. He knows they're going to have to fight again. And he's pleading that this day would be different. he says, you are my king, O God, even here in the land of disillusionment, but please, please ordain salvation for Jacob because the sun's coming up tomorrow, man, and we're going to have to go out and fight again. And listen to what he says. He says, through you we push down our foes. See, but if we go out in our own strength, we get pushed down. That was today's lesson. Through you and through your name, he says, we tread down those who rise up against us. But if we go out on our own name, we get treaded down. Just been there, just done that, he's saying. For I do not, for not, he says, in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. We've just proved that. They failed me in spades. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. What a statement of confidence. He's stating it as though it's done, even in the land of disillusionment. He's stating it as though it's done. He knows it's coming. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know if he'll live to see it. But God delivers His people. And then He says, and we will give thanks to Your name forever, even when we cannot connect the dots and nothing makes sense. The psalmist, in the midst of this land of disillusionment, coming fresh off of this brutal defeat, where that he does not understand at all, is calling for a worship service. That's a stunning thought, but you find it all over the Bible. It's like a theme. You see the same pattern. The people of God worship in faith in the midst of their sufferings. 
And doing so encourages their soul and brings God glory, which is the idea, isn't it? I mean, Paul and Silas go to Philippi, and they come across this slave girl, and she's demonically possessed, and they deliver her from her demonic possession. I think we'd all agree that's a good thing that they've done. Well, as a result of that good thing that they've done, what happens to them? They're stripped, they're beaten, they're flogged, and they're thrown naked and bleeding into the deepest, darkest part of the town prison. And then at midnight, it's specifically noted, the deepest, darkest part of the night, they are singing and worshiping. That's the response. You think about it from Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, giving birth to Jesus, clearly a good thing, isn't it? But that angelic announcement that you, Virgin Mary, are now going to give birth to the Son of God is a pretty clever explanation for a teenage pregnant girl, don't you think? There is suffering attached to that. Her sanity is called into question. Her purity is called into question. Her impending marriage is called into question. Everything is up for grabs in that moment. And in that moment, what does she do? She sings the Magnificat. She worships. You think of Job, the most famous of sufferers and the most devout man on the planet, according to God Himself, in his day, who in one day loses everything. He loses all of his wealth, which was very considerable. He loses all 10 of his kids. Little pause for effect. He loses his own health. His wife comes and says, you should just curse God and die. And what is his response? It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. So this is devastating. And then it says, and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Persevering in the land of disillusionment, right? Lesson one, focus on God's faithfulness. You can choose what you focus on. Focus on His faithfulness. Lesson two, worship. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't check out. Give God glory, and before your whole world, declare that He is worthy of your worship even when you can't connect the dots, even when you're in the land of disillusionment. So then, having laid that first foundational level of his literary ziggurat by which he is climbing and ascending up into the presence of God, where he is going to reveal his heart in full to the Lord and make his request, he then builds the next level in verses 9 through 16. And as we read these verses, I want you to look for the word you. It's all over these verses. Verse 9, he says, but you have rejected us and disgraced us. And have not gone out with our armies, we know, because we lost. And you have turned your back from, or have made us turn our back, he's saying, from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. It's like you got nothing in return for this loss, Lord. You, he says, have made us the taunt of our neighbors. 
the derision and the scorn of those around us. You, he says, have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and my shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sound or at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. The idea being, and you, O God, have made it so. But here's the interesting part. Instead of allowing that reality to discourage him, what he's doing is he's allowing that reality to encourage him. One of the great ironies, I think, of life in the land of disillusionment is that people like to come along, well-meaning people, to you while you're in that land of disillusionment and try to absolve God of any involvement in this. You know, it's like it doesn't make any sense. God clearly can't be involved in this. You know, the Lord has not ordained this for you. Please don't say that to anybody, and particularly don't say that to me, okay? Because number one, it's not biblical, and number two, it, it makes it worse, not better. If God is not involved in this, and I don't understand this, the arrogance in me wants to go, well, therefore, it must not make sense, and there's not a good explanation. Oh, no, we've talked about that already, haven't we? Just because I can't grasp it doesn't mean it can't be grasped. But if God is not involved in this suffering that I do not understand and cannot connect the dots on then I am nothing more than an accident victim, and whatever it is that I'm going through is utterly meaningless. It has no purpose at all. But if instead what I'm going through, though I do not understand it, is coming to me from the hand of a sovereign God who has designed, manufactured, and lovingly placed it into my life, whose wisdom is inscrutable, whose love for me is unquestionable, well then, it does have meaning. And it does have purpose. And I'm not an accident victim, and neither is the psalmist, and neither is you, or neither are you. Lesson one for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to focus on God's faithfulness. You get to choose what you're going to focus on. Focus on that. It is to continue to worship. In fact, maybe to take it up a few notches. And lesson three is to focus on the sovereignty of God, who works it all together for His glory and for our good. So then having laid the second level of the literary ziggurat by which He's ascending up to God, He now builds the third level, verses 17 through 22. And in this level, what He does is He protests their innocence. He's saying, hey, God, let me play for you back kind of how we've been living and what we've been doing, and notice that we haven't done anything bad, we haven't done anything foolish, we haven't done anything stupid. In fact, we've been, been trying to get it all right here. He says, all of this defeat, if you will, has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, and yet you have broken us. You have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. He says, Lord, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, then would not God discover this? For God knows the secrets of the heart. And then, quite frankly, it would make sense, all of this. But that's not the case. He says, yet for your sake, yet for your glory, perhaps, We are going bankrupt. We are losing our homes to foreclosure. We are shutting the doors of our business. We are failing in our relationships. All of those are significant, but it's even bigger than that. He says, we are killed. 
all the day long were killed. And we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's your third level, which means he's reached the upper chamber. He's ascended through his poetry, lesson by lesson. And now he gives us the cry of his heart. And I think you're going to be able to relate to this. It's very raw. And it's very emphatic. It's like he comes into the upper chamber, into the presence of God, and, and he doesn't say, hey, and how are you doing? And it's good to see you, and it's been a little while, and I hope everything's going well, and what do you think of the weather? And oh, by the way, while I'm here, I thought I might mention... He comes into the presence of God, and he, he cries out what he and we want. He says, awake! Why are you sleeping? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, Lord, in case you haven't noticed. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up and come to our help. Almost makes me feel better just to say that. There's something there that everybody can relate to. I think there's a reason why the Psalms is, at least allegedly, uh, the most preached out of book in the Bible. And I think there's a reason also that the prevailing or the overwhelming number of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. I think those two go together. And I think it's because we find a friend in the psalmist when we find ourselves in a similar kind of condition and we read the words that the Spirit Himself has inspired the psalmist to say, or in this case, to pray, because they echo what we'd like to say. He's very carefully and respectfully ascended into the presence of God, but He doesn't withhold what he desires, and he doesn't withhold either how he feels, and yet that's not where he ends. And that's important too. He ends with this last statement. He says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And the Hebrew word translated into English as steadfast love is one of the most significant words in the Bible. It's the word hesed, and it speaks of the loyalty that God has for His people. And it's a loyalty that's not born out of obligation or duty or contract. It's a loyalty that is born out of His so great love for us. And when you're in the land of disillusionment, in addition to the faithfulness of God, in addition to the ongoing worthiness of God, of your worship, even in that land where life makes no sense, and in addition to God's sovereignty, the idea that God actually still has it all under control and is working it together for our good, what else do you tend to doubt? You tend to doubt His love. And the logic's simple, isn't it? If God loved me, then He would not be allowing this to happen in my life. But what the psalmist is trying to get you to see, and the irony of Scripture is that it is precisely because God loves you that He has ordained and allowed this to happen in your life. You only seek to perfect that which you love, and He loves you. I mean, think about it this way. You know, my children learn nothing from me if my greatest value for my kids are seasons of ease and comfort. You know, and so the only commandments that I ever come to them with are things like, thou shalt eat thy dessert. It's stuff they want to do anyway. I never demand anything difficult from them. They learn absolutely nothing. 
Zero. It's when they've got to get out of bed when they want to sleep. It's when they've got to go clean their room when they want to play. It's when they've gone out and purchased the most precious, you know, possession in all the world, at least for today. Tomorrow there will be another one, but at least for today. And their friend comes over and I say, you know what? You need to share that with so-and-so. And they've bought it, shocking, with their own money. And everything in them is going, no, not fair, not fair. I've done nothing bad. I've done nothing foolish. I've done nothing wrong. Dad, I've been obedient all day. I bought it with my own money. And now you're going to make me share it with you. Yes, I am, because it's good for you. It's good for you to share it. And my greatest value for you is not comfort and ease. It's growth and character. And I'm not just preparing you for the next 15 minutes. I'm preparing you, hopefully, for the next 70 or 80 years. The idea is that that's the way it is with the Lord, too. God puts us in the land of disillusionment, not because He does not love us, but specifically because He does love us and because His goal for us is not comfort and ease. He gives us those seasons. Praise the Lord. (laughs) But it's not His goal. It is growth in Christ-likeness. And there is nothing that can grow us in Christ-likeness. In likeness unto the one who suffered unjustly and undeservedly more than anyone else ever than a little undeserved suffering of our own. And I say a little, and I know some of you want to argue with that and go, no, 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 it's, it's more than a little. Let me tell you my story. That's fine. It's still just a little. Paul gathers up all that he suffered And then he looks at it in light of the glory that he knows by faith. He can't see, smell, hear, taste, or touch it yet, but he knows by faith is coming as a result of it to God and to him. And he says, I consider all of these present afflictions like they're nothing. They're little things compared to what's being stored up for me in heaven. And by the way, he's not just preparing us for the next 15 or 20 minutes or even the next 70 or 80 years. He's preparing us for eternity, and I think that we forget that too. His goal is prepare you for eternity. He's not time-bound and limited the way that we are. So, lesson number one for persevering in the land of disillusionment is to focus on God's faithfulness. Lesson two, to continue to worship before your family, church, and everyone with whom you work, live, and play, declaring that God will find a voice of praise in you, for He is worthy of your worship, even when life does not make sense. Lesson three is to focus on the sovereignty of God who works all things together for His glory and your good, even when you don't understand it. And like the psalmist, you, you, you can't see it, so he gets no answer. And lesson number four is to focus on the loyal love of God, a love that is written in the indelible ink of the blood of your Savior. So I hope that's a help to you. If you're in the land of disillusionment, and if you're not, don't worry, you will be. So save the notes, because God gives you these means that His Spirit then uses to sustain you in those seasons, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You do not abandon us to chance and to circumstance. Lord, we praise You that we are not accident victims, though from our perspective it sure seems like it. Lord, we thank You that there is a greater mind and a greater plan. We thank You that the story ends well and it ends all in good, though our imaginations are often way too limited to figure out how in the world that's going to happen. 
I pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith, that you would turn our hearts away from despair and focus them upon your faithfulness, that you would cause us to declare with the psalmist that you are our king no matter what and are worthy of our worship. Lord, that you would help us to dwell upon your sovereignty and to understand that you really do have it under control. And God, to meditate upon the love that you have for your people and your loyalty to us as demonstrated and manifested through the gift of your Son. And I pray that for your glory and our good, that these things will aid us as we suffer strengthen us, and allow us to hold on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.